Jonathan, thank you. That was excellent. I appreciate it. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It's page 887 of your Pew Bible. You can turn there now. We're going to read a we're going to read a, a an account of a conversation between Jesus and a very learned man. And Benjamin, would you mind just closing that back left door for me there? Thank you. John chapter 3, we'll pick up our reading in verse 1. And it is as I said, page 887 of your Pew Bibles. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born with the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? I'm sorry, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
Father, would you give us grace to understand something of this passage? Help us to engage with you just like Nicodemus did that night. And I pray that if there be any in here whose night is truly dark, who have thought for a wrong reason that they are children of God, I pray that you would bring them to the conclusion that they're born again by faith and faith alone. May they see you as a saving, kind God who wants to redeem them. I pray that you would bless our understanding of this passage. And may we, like Nicodemus did, either come to faith in Christ or continue in our faith with Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, I'd like to tell you a little story. It was in England. Do you guys know where England is? England is across the Atlantic Ocean. By the way, I feel like my microphone is a little hot. Can that be turned on just a, t- a touch? Thank you. England is across the Atlantic Ocean. It's all the way over on the other side. And one Sunday morning in England, this is early 1800s, a giant snowstorm hit all of England, kind of like happened today. Well, there was a young man. His name was Charles. Charles was, if memory serves, I didn't look it up this morning, but he was 15, maybe 16 years old. Charles got hung up in this snowstorm, and ordinarily he wanted to go to his usual church. The trouble with his usual church is they didn't teach the Bible. Well, their church closed its services. And so there was a small church nearby that apparently was open. And so Charles went to that church. There were only a couple people there. You see, back then they didn't have four-wheel drive vehicles. They may have had four-legged vehicles, but they didn't have four-wheel drive vehicles. And so most people had to stay home. Even the pastor had to stay home. Well, one of the men in the church stood up and opened to this passage of Scripture, to John chapter 3. And he had a very short sermon, much shorter than mine will be today. And he looked straight at Charles, and he said, Son, children, don't you like it that I don't look at you and point you out in front of everybody and single you out for attention? Well, this man looked at Charles and he said, son, you look miserable. You need to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus in faith and he'll save you. And Charles did. And he said that he went home that day feeling like his feet didn't touch the ground. You see, he realized that he was a sinner. There was no good that he could do that would earn his way into heaven. And so he just looked to Jesus. Now, some of you, mostly not our children, are looking at me and smiling and nodding because you know this story. Do you know who this Charles was? He was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, soon to be known as the Prince of Preachers. He was one of the greatest preachers. He became one of the greatest preachers in the English language. And he pastored, probably at the time, the largest church in the world. 
in London. But it all started that one day, a farmer told him, look to Jesus. And he did. Well, this morning, that's what I would like to encourage everybody to do, to look to Jesus. Let's begin here in John chapter 3, right at the very beginning. We see the word now. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. That word now is a bit of a clue as to something that was said earlier. And so if you'll take your eyes and go to the paragraph before, we'll see something. Look at the beginning of verse 23 of chapter 2. What do you see? Another now. There it is. Now, when he came to Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. So Jesus was there among all these Jewish people. There were all these leaders. The Passover feast was a time when thousands and thousands of people would come. There's all these crowds of people. They saw the signs that he was doing, and many believed. But, verse 24, when these people believed, they came to Jesus wanting something from him. They believed, maybe some of them had saving belief, maybe some of them had a belief that was surface level, a belief in the good things he was doing, a belief in the good that he was, but not the belief that he would save your soul from your sins because he's the son of God, he is God in the flesh. It wasn't that kind of belief. So look in verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what do we see? We see that there are some people who are coming to Jesus saying, I believe you. And Jesus says to them, you have saving faith. And then there are some people who are coming to Jesus saying, I believe you, but deep down what they're really trying to do is use Jesus for their own selfish ends. How would you ever know the difference? Well, you might not be able to know, but Jesus did. You say, okay, pastor, I see that, but what does that look like? What does it look like when somebody comes to Jesus with faith that's not saving, but faith that's trying to use him for their own selfish purposes. What does that look like? Now, there was a man from the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus. And this is one of those people. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus with a certain type of faith that doesn't save him. And Jesus is going to talk to him about that. Read right here, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Let's note several positives about Nicodemus that I think Jesus would agree with. Number one, Nicodemus is a leader. It says later on in the passage, I think it's verse 10, that he is the teacher in Israel. He's probably some recognized government official. We might call him the secretary of the education board. The What do we call that? The head of, the head of national education, whatever it is. But you know what I mean. A high-ranking government official whose job it is to teach religious education to Jewish young people. 
they didn't have anything like we would recognize as separation of church and state. Education of religion and life and finance and math, all of that was tied up with religion at its center. And Nicodemus was the central figure of this educational system. He was the leader of it. The high-ranking man, an educated man, a man that people look to for education, for instruction. We see here that he has a really positive opinion of Jesus, doesn't he? And that he's to be commended for that. We're not criticizing him. He says, Jesus, look, we know that God is with you because nobody could do these signs unless God is with him. Now that, by the way, is a bit countercultural. And we need to applaud Nicodemus for standing up to the culture around him. When Jewish people, when other Jewish people saw, Jewish doing the, saw Jesus doing these signs, who did they say was responsible for it? They said, you are dwelt, you are indwelt with who? Beazabal, the prince of demons. So Nicodemus's culture around him was saying, Jesus is demon-possessed. But the teacher in Israel says, no, no. Look at all the good things he's doing. Visible, he wouldn't be doing this. This is from God. This is clearly from God. This is a good man. And I trust him in some sense. Another thing that we can applaud Nicodemus for is that he goes to Jesus. How easy would it have been for Nicodemus, the older man in this situation, to summon the young teacher to his quarters? How tempting would it have been for Nicodemus to take this young whippersnapper of a teacher and say, come and see me? I'm sure he, I'm sure that thought crossed his mind. But Nicodemus humbles himself. And he gets to where Jesus is. Now we note here, I'm going to put this one as, a, oh, G Nicodemus is also a member of the Sanhedrin. It's a member of the Jewish ruling class. He's a recognized leader in sort of a senatorial role. He's a very official man. He goes to Jesus. Now what we're not sure of is if this is something commendable or not. We're told that Nicodemus goes to Jesus at what time of the day? At night. At night. Well, commentators have argued about this for quite some time. Some say, well, this is a really good thing, actually. We have ancient documents, and it's very true, that rabbis spent many hours arguing about theology late into the night into the early morning hours. It was a time when uh, you were a little more free. Uh, you didn't have the obligations of the day. The meal was already eaten. You had space. You could get larger quarters and gather more people together. A little more freedom, fewer time constraints, and so forth. And so there's a way of looking at this that says... What Nicodemus really wanted was to engage in a long conversation with Jesus about matters of faith. Nicodemus gets to where Jesus is, and nighttime happened to be the most convenient time for this conversation to take place. 
And if that's the case, that's a very commendable thing from Nicodemus, isn't it? And we would all say, yeah, that's really good. And that, I want you to know, is absolutely in the realm of possibility. The strongest argument for that is that Jesus doesn't say, hey, buddy, why are you coming to me at night? And Jesus didn't have any problem confronting people when they needed it. And Jesus doesn't confront him at all on that point. I think there's another school of thought. Okay, I belong to this other school of thought, but this is not a matter of primary doctrine, so please feel free to disagree with me if you would like. Okay? I think that Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night means that he was trying to do something sneaky. Now, children, when my son Peyton was, oh, about three or four years old, he did something, he did something wrong. And I said, I, I told him that, that that was a lie. And it, being three or four, that's kind of an abstract concept. He didn't understand what it meant that he had not told the truth. And I said, son, you're being like Sneaky Pete. You, get, you children know who Sneaky Pete is from Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? Of course you do. When Peyton heard that I was accusing him of being like Sneaky Pete, righteous indignation filled him. He stood up and bared his back. He goes, I am not being Sneaky Pete. <laughs> well, the fact is he was. Okay. <laughs> I think Nicodemus' children is being a little bit sneaky for two reasons. Number one, look at what Nicodemus says to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God and no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Why is Nicodemus suddenly breaking into the we instead of I? If he were coming at night for a personal conversation, I think he would have used the word I. But he's coming on sort of a secret delegation, I think, from some other Jewish leaders who are a bit countercultural and believe that Jesus isn't filled with a demon, but Jesus is good. And remember what we talked about in chapter 2? There are people who are coming to Jesus with selfish ends. And I believe that Nicodemus came at night because he represented a certain number of these people who didn't want to come under the authority of Jesus, but wanted to use Jesus for their own ends. And Jesus knew that. Number two, the word night or the idea of dark in the Gospel of John always means evil or some sort of spiritual darkness. Okay? And so by coming at night, I think John is using this a bit symbolically as well. Nicodemus was coming at night, representing sort of a secret, under-the-radar delegation of people who wanted to use Jesus. And Nicodemus did not know how dark his night really was. He thought he was coming, perhaps not on equal terms, but on far more equal terms than he thought, to Jesus. 
And Jesus is going to hear what he has to say and take the conversation in a completely unexpected direction from Nicodemus's perspective. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We know, we know that you're from God. It's very commendable. It's very commendable. He got to Jesus. I think that Nicodemus was representing some others. Maybe he wasn't. Either way, friends, what Jesus says next is so important. It's so important for everybody here. It's so important for everybody in the world. It's so important for little children sitting in their seats right now. It's so important to everybody who wants to hear what Jesus has to say. All of you are in here because you see something good in Jesus. I want you to know that that is not enough. That is not enough for salvation. It's good, and I'm happy you see something good in Jesus, just like Jesus was happy that Nicodemus came to him. But there is something more that you need. And Jesus is going to address you through Nicodemus now. Here's what he says. Jesus answered him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, I want you to notice the language that Jesus uses. It's the language of ability. You cannot. You cannot. Now, this would have been a huge surprise to Nicodemus. Here's a man who'd given his life to the theology of what we would call the Old Testament. He likely had the entire Torah memorized. How many of you have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How many of you have done that? Okay, so your righteousness does not exceed Nicodemus's, does it? How many of you have given your life seven decades or more to the education, to the theological education of those around you? How many of you have done that? How many of you have been recognized by your peers as a spiritual leader and have been asked to represent your nation in some national way for the theological good of your people? How many of that's happened to? So nobody in here can say that you are on equal ground with Nicodemus, would you? All of you would say, I fall short of Nicodemus. And even if you were equal to Nicodemus, what does Jesus say to you? Even if you're a child of Abraham, even if your heritage goes all the way back to Abraham himself, even if you've done all these righteous things, even if you're the teacher of Israel, even if you've given your life to understanding theology and God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Can't. You're incapable. It's impossible, Jesus says. He's speaking about ability. There's nothing you can do. There's no situation in which you can be born. There's no way for you to advance to the kingdom of God. And this, my friends, was absolutely shocking to Nicodemus. 
In fact, we can see how incredulous he is. What are you saying? I have to be born like a second time? How can this be? Nicodemus is flabbergasted. If he doesn't get into the kingdom by their own works, who can? If he doesn't get into the kingdom by virtue of how he was born, who can? And Jesus' answer is, nobody. You see, children, children, here's the thing I want you to understand. Salvation is not about something that you do. Salvation is something that happens to you. You need something to happen to you. And it says right here that that thing is being born again. Jesus says for you to get into the kingdom of God, which is God's throne, is in heaven, to enter heaven, to fellowship with God forever, you have to be born again. Now, Nicodemus is a bit surprised by this. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb and be born? Now, let's pause right there and just say, commentators are divided over what exactly Nicodemus is asking. And to be honest with you, I'm not totally sure what Nicodemus is asking. Is he, is he saying... Jesus, what you're, is, he, is he saying, Jesus, what you're saying is impossible and doesn't make sense? Or is he saying, it, it, have you ever gotten into an argument with somebody? Not that any of you would ever argue with anybody, but let's pretend you did. And they take your words in a sort of hyper-literal way that you never intended to mean, but they're not doing it because they really believe it. They're doing it to try to win an argument. How many, have you, has any of you that ever happened to you? can raise your hand if that's ever happened. I guess you would have to admit to arguing. But has that ever, have you ever seen that happen to a loved one? Okay. <laughs> Some commentators think that that's what Nicodemus is doing here. Okay. Some eminent commentators, I might add, that I would be very hesitant to disagree with. Uh, honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know. I could see it going either way. Whichever Whichever way you take it, those are your two main possibilities. There are a few others. Whichever way you take it, Nicodemus is totally confused and confounded by what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus is going to clarify. He says, truly, truly. Now, let's go back again to the first to ver chapter, uh, to verse 3. Jesus says, truly, truly. And now again, he says, truly, truly. So this must be important to Jesus. He keeps talking about truly. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus says, you were born by your mother. You were born in sin. That which is born of flesh is flesh. You need to be born again of the spirit. Now let's go to these words, whoever is born of water and the Spirit. Again, there's a lot of disagreement on what water means. There's one thing that it cannot mean from the text. It cannot mean water baptism. Okay, Number one, water baptism wasn't yet a thing. This was practiced long, this began to be practiced after Jesus uh, was buried and rose again. 
and Jesus is talking to somebody prior to that. Second, Jesus is talking about the Spirit in this context. He says the Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You see the effects, but you don't know where it's coming or going from. Jesus said you have to be born again of the Spirit. And the way that I take this is being born of the water, being born of water and the Spirit. It's not talking about two things, but one thing. And it's talking about being born by the Spirit of God, which is symbolic of cleansing, which is symbolic of the Spirit coming in, pouring into us, rushing into us, that, that, that this is not talking about a second event, but it's, it's a, another description of the same event. Does that make sense? Okay. If I were to say that the snow this morning was heavy and wet, I wouldn't mean there was one type of snow that was heavy and one type of snow that was wet. I would say it was the snow was heavy because it was wet. I'm, I'm describing one thing with two words. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's describing a spiritual type of baptism, a spiritual type of uh, regeneration of new birth that the Spirit of God has to perform on you. You need this to enter the kingdom of God. Let's advance down to chapter uh, 3, verse 9. Nicodemus is still a little confused. He said, how can these things be? How can these things be? How, how can I be born again? How, how can I have the Spirit make me an entirely new person? How is it that I, who've given my life to teaching, how is it that I, who've been born a Jew, don't have any access to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to him, well, you need, you need to have this salvation. You need to have this birth given to you. Jesus is going to explain a few things. Look down. Look down at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now we're getting close to the end here, children, so I want you to hang with me, okay? Hang with me real quick. There's a story from the Old Testament. Do you guys remember this story? The people of Israel had been complaining They've been griping about Moses, and God sent serpents into their camp, and they were bit, and some of them began to die. And God told Moses, I will give them salvation from these snake bites, but what I want you to do is fashion a snake out of gold and put it up on a pole. Now, children... All of us know that the easiest thing in the world to make out of Play-Doh is a snake, right? You want to make something out of Play-Doh? Just ch -ch -ch -ch, you got yourself a snake. So this could be done really quick and easy, right? Get around, da -da, put it on pole, put it up. And do you know how people got healed from their snake bites? Children, do you know how people got healed from their snake bites? 
all they had to do was get out of their tent and look at the pole. That's all they had to do. Did they have to make a sacrifice in front of the pole? Did they have to chant any phrases in front of the pole? Did they have to put on special clothes and get in front of the pole? All they had to do was look. But children, I want you to know something. Many thousands of people died that day because they wouldn't look at the pole. They didn't want to. They would rather die doing it their own way than submit to God and accept his salvation. And Jesus says, that is very similar to our day and age. He says, those who don't believe are condemned already, but those who do believe are saved. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, do you want to be born again? Just like those Israelites had to look at the pole, so I'm going to be lifted up on a cross, and you have to look at me in faith. And just like there were many Israelites who chose to do it their own way, who refused to accept God's gift to them, so there will be many, many people who look at Jesus' sacrifice and turn away because they don't want it. They love the darkness more than they love the light, Jesus says. Friends, here's my plea to you. Love the light. Look to Jesus. God is motivated by his love. He doesn't want to condemn you. He didn't send his son into this world to condemn you. He wants to save you. And it says right here in 316 that because he loves you so much, he sent his son into the world to die on a cross and be lifted up. You can't enter the kingdom of God with works. You can't enter the kingdom of God because of how you were born. You can't enter the kingdom of God because you're a teacher. You can't enter the kingdom of God because you're a leader. You can't enter the kingdom of God because you're a good person. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a man who obeyed the law to the letter. You can't get into the kingdom that way. You can only get into the kingdom by looking at Jesus. And when you do that, something happens to you. Just like those people were healed from their bites, so God uses his spirit to make you born again. He gives you life. And that is the only way you can go to heaven. That's the only way you can have eternal life. You need God to do something for you. Think of it perhaps, think of it perhaps, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a tube, OK? 
Okay. You don't go to Jesus. He comes to you to save you. And when he sees there's an openness from you to him, he rushes to you and he saves you. And what Jesus is looking for is that openness to say, you're, you're the king. You died for me. And I want you to save me. Now, last thought before we wrap up for the morning. You cannot have this sort of saving faith and attempt to use Jesus at the same time. You know why? Because Jesus won't have it. (laughs) He won't be used. He won't be used. When Nicodemus came to Jesus attempting to use him for his own ends, Jesus didn't quite ignore him, but took the conversation in such a different direction that Nicodemus had to drop all of those aspirations of using Jesus. So what happened to Nicodemus? Anybody know? What happened? One day, the Jews were arguing about Jesus, and Nicodemus defended him. And the Jews ridiculed him. And then, when they succeeded at killing him, they thought they killed him, but Jesus laid down his life. When Jesus was dead, Nicodemus was one of the men who gathered the corpse of Jesus and laid him very temporarily in a tomb. Nicodemus was one of the first people to endure scorn for the name of Jesus. And Nicodemus was one of the first people to step out in faith because of Jesus. Was Nicodemus using Jesus, or was Jesus using Nicodemus? And you see it's the second one. And that's an entirely different way of thinking. So if you've never been born again and you're here with us saying, I I think I'd be in the category of Nicodemus. I've had some good thoughts toward Jesus, but I've never turn to him in faith like that. In a moment, we're going to pray, and I'd encourage you to talk to God about that. Perhaps, in fact, it's very likely I haven't answered all your questions in one short sermon, and I would love to answer whatever questions you might have at the door. If you want to meet privately, I'm happy to meet with you privately. We have other pastors on staff, Pastor Dom, Pastor Chris, who are also happy to meet with you and explain these things in greater detail, because we want you to be born again. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know you and give us grace to serve you. I pray that if there be any in here who don't know you or who know of you but have never come to you in saving faith, I pray that they would drop their self-righteousness and would look only to you to be born again. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.